When I was in my mid-30s and living in New York City, I had the opportunity to go on tour with the band The Walkman uh, as an opening act, and this opening act was called Rockwell. It's very much a one-man act. I would play guitar to some backing tracks, but I had all kinds of other kind of semi-vaudevillian tricks. But in the Walkman were pretty successful. They would play venues from 800 to 1,000, you know, smaller if it was a smaller town. And, you know, usually you go out as an opening act and you're trying to drum up business. This wasn't that. I was 34, 35. I had been running for 15 years trying to make it as any number of things in New York City. It just felt a little bit post-hunt. Like, the hunt was over. I kind of knew it, and I kind of didn't know it. Now, one show we went to was at the Metro in Chicago. It was a nice big room. It was a beautiful room. But more importantly, they, for whatever reason, the owner or whoever put on shows there really concentrated on taking care of their artist. They would actually do a limited-run poster for every concert they had there. But, you know, we're pulling up to the Metro, and it doesn't really get off on the good foot. Now, you have to understand that back then, with the way I looked, you know, I had these, like, bell-bottom spandexy things, a Fu Manchu mustache, and giant tinted shades, and and when we pulled up in front of the Metro, they had roadies come out. I remember feeling particularly dissed by these young roadies. Like, I don't know if they laughed right at me, but that was the distinct vibe. When encountering this, I kind of always felt like I wanted to say, like, yeah, I know, I get I get it, guys. I get it. I get that I'm being absurd. You know, to me, it was always not ironic at all, but more like a Bowie arch thing. I get that I look a little unusual. I'm okay with that. But again, like I go in the metro and it's just everything is there for me. Like this is the only place I played where I actually had my own really specifically dedicated dressing room with this poster waiting for me. And I think a note, everything was fully stocked. And then I go on, and I just had the best time. You know, I really had the best concert there. My act was kind of cool. I always included the audience a lot. There was always a lot of discussion with the audience. And I was a tour guide, so I really knew how to talk to audiences. And there were all these different tricks I'd pull on on stage. And actually, my best trick was I had a bullwhip. And I had a bullwhip, and I would crack it a couple times on stage. I mean, not well, because I wasn't very good at this bullwhip thing. And then I would go down into the audience, and the audience would part. And I would ask for a volunteer to basically hold a cigarette in their mouth while I whipped the cigarette out of their mouth. Even if you're dealing with an expert bullwhipper, you're probably not going to volunteer for that. But of course, I always got volunteers for that. And I would line them up a good 20 or 30 feet away from me and go through all the motions of like rolling the whip, rolling the whip, getting ready to whip this thing out of this mouth, this tiny cigarette out of their mouth. And that's, of course, when it stopped, where I basically said, you know, what's wrong with you? Why would you do this? And it wasn't like mean-spirited at all. It was pretty funny. And I tell you, when I would be down in the audience, it was such an electric vibe. Like a circle would clear on the floor, and I would crack the whip. So there was this sense of actual danger. There were really aspects of that show that were really cool. And it was a great opening act, because it got everyone really excited. That crowd loved me so much. And those roadies who had kind of been there, kind of like snickering at me, they loved me. I mean, they practically carried me off stage. They just, they were totally reverent of me and they had, they just loved what I had kind of pulled off in front of their eyes. It really worked. And then, of course, like any rock star, I go out and celebrate. And I celebrate with the Walkman and where there was an after party and it's really quite blurry. I do remember like a few snapshots, but. 
I was not really conscious for most of the night. And I wake up the next morning in the hotel room. Again, this is like rock and roll from start to finish. I wake up in the hotel room and I'm just badly hungover. At this point, the Walkmen are going to proceed. They're like going out to Wisconsin and, and other states and I'm going back home. Like that's always been planned. I was going to take it to Chicago and then go back to New York City. So that morning, I have a 12 and a half hour straight shot drive from Chicago to New York City waiting for me. Badly hungover and just kind of savoring the elation of the concert the night before and just dreading having this drive and just feeling as terrible as I do. And my buddy Walt, who was the bassist and organist of the Walkman, he had this mix CD in the car. So that was really the only music I had to listen to was this mix CD that I think he had put together. And I'm really not that far out of town when this song starts coming on. Mr. Bojangles. Now, this song always had the biggest impact on me. Even when I was a kid, I was fascinated by this song and really touched. You know, when you're young and you're five and seven and nine, you're trying to figure out, like, what are they talking about? And in this song, they're talking about this guy who's in prison, and he sees this other guy across the room, and he says, wait a second, you're Mr. Bojangles. You're a great dancer. I saw you dance. And of course, the refrain is, Mr. Bojangles, dance for me. And there's just so much pathos in it. Right? This unseen figure who had once been great and is suddenly recognized once more but in jail. And it's really so deeply moving to me. And of course, as hungover as I was, and having had such a great night the night before, I just melted into tears. Barely able to drive kind of tears just rolling down my face. And that was it. You know, it was in that moment that I really knew that it was over that the 15 years of straight hustle had come to an end. Like the hunt, which I kind of thought was over, was actually over. And all of that energy and effort was going to go away now. And there would be really nothing to kind of mark it. And that it had worked. Like, I had made it work. I had made it work, for sure, for one night. But I also knew that it wouldn't be replicable. It was just that one moment. Like, for one night in Chicago at the Metro, I had totally shown that I had what it took and that it was original and interesting and kind of surprising. And then it was over, too, because it just wouldn't be repeated. All right, we're coming out of the basin, the low fog, and are back up high where the wind blows and you can see for miles and miles. The second hour of Barbarian in the Valley is just minutes away. Just a reminder that our show is podcasted throughout the week and is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and all other major platforms. The second hour coming up is live, live, live. Till then, enjoy the music. i 
im besten morgendlichen Schein ziehen die Vögel, und mögen sie wohl morgen sein. Ich folge dem Rauschen der Schwingen in der Stille. Sie wissen, kann sie sehen, wir tanzen. 